Welcome to week three of Trinity Bible Study. I'm so glad you're here. Um, last week, we considered Jesus as the high priest. That's what the writer wanted his audience to do, and we looked at that. What's that look like? We talked about the choice between uh, rebelling against God, not trusting Him, and following, and being uh, loyal to Him, and finishing uh, this race he's given us um, to rest. Um, that's the other thing. If we don't rebel, we will get that rest. And so that writer kind of talked to us about that, looking back at Moses. And so this week we're going to continue. Uh, the writer is still talking about Jesus as the high priest and also continue some pretty scary warnings. And so remember, this is the good kind of bad teacher. And you hear this pastor's heart and I cannot imagine how hard it was for him to put all this on paper to, for them because it has been really hard for me to put it on paper for you. And I'm not inspired by the Holy Spirit like the writer of Hebrews was, but I, I'm hoping the Holy Spirit is helping me. But I'm just telling you that if, you're, if you were going, oh, what is she going to say about this? This is probably that lesson because this is the lesson where we learn about this thing that a lot of Christians call the unforgivable sin. So please be patient with me. I am not going to be able to say it all. And you may have more questions after the lesson than before, but um, we're here to help you, your leader. Um, we have lots of uh, things to read, a lot of other commentaries, and you can also just call me because some of this stuff really is just hard to understand. Okay, so here we go. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand where it is hard. Um, we can't even understand the easy stuff. Um, unless you teach us. So I pray the Holy Spirit would bless this teaching and that you would make our ears ready to hear. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, well, let's start off reading uh, from chapter 4. Um, we're going to start off in verse um, 13 and uh, keep on going for a little bit till around 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Okay, just to wrap up chapter 4, the writer is still talking about the high priest and talking about Jesus is compassionate. And this is amazing when we think about God himself being able to understand what it's like to walk in our shoes. Um, this gives us a confidence and accessibility to the throne of God. We're a daddy's girl. He understands how we feel. Um, he gets it. And we have this access to just grace. So we open this lesson up with just the grace of God, of how God himself knows what it feels like to be tempted. He did not sin. That's why he's the perfect sacrifice, but he can understand what it feels like to be where you are. Also, like the Old Testament priests, um, we see in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, some more stuff about Jesus. So let's keep reading. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. 
Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And also, and he says in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we see how the old priests, the human priests, there were certain things about them. First of all, they offered two kinds of sacrifices, one of thanksgiving and one for sins. Um, they were empathetic. Aaron knew what it was like to see a beautiful woman and be tempted to lust after her. So he could talk to the man who would come to him saying, hey, I'm struggling with this. He wasn't like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, Aaron was a man. He could talk to him because he was beset by weakness. Just like today, ministry is really good. If you know and are okay saying to a sister in Christ, hey, I know what it's like to worry about money or to be jealous and uh, of somebody else's house or car or finances. I know what it's like to be weak like that. Let me help you. The old high priests were kind that way. They could gently instruct the people of God. That's one of their jobs. And we see that they were also appointed by God. You couldn't like raise your hand and say, hey, I want to be a high priest. God appointed you to that office. And so we see that Jesus is like that in so many ways. He's different than the human priest because he's God and he's perfect. But he has some same roles to play. He offers... His, himself as a sin offering. He is empathetic to us. Like we just said, he knows what it's like to be tempted, but he didn't sin. He understands the pressures of being human. Um, he also knows what it's like to suffer. He is a man of sorrows. You know, this made him a perfect kind of high priest because he learned obedience from the inside out. He knows, just like I don't want someone who's never, um, like if I've had a miscarriage, I don't want, as much as a friend who's never had a miscarriage wants to help me can imagine how hard that is, someone who's really had a miscarriage can really say the right thing and really be solace for another woman who's had a miscarriage. Jesus likewise knows what it feels to taste that fear that you taste, to taste the the loneliness you have, to to see injustices and to see them going un to see them go by. He knows what it feels like to be human in that sense. So he is a great high priest that he is empathetic. He also knows what it's like to hear no from God because Jesus himself prayed, Lord, is there any other way for this cup of judgment to go down a different way? And his father said no. So when, we get, when, when our prayers are answered in the negative, he knows what that feels like. Um, you can be perfectly heard and you may still have to suffer. 
Jesus knows what that's like. And he was appointed by God too. He was appointed by God the Father. You're my son. I appoint you in this this high priesthood of like Melchizedek. We're going to get to Melchizedek later and maybe in the next lesson or two. But this is when all of a sudden the writer of Hebrews stops abruptly. And you kind of just see him with his pen go on this other tangent. Because he says he's getting revved up about what kind of high priest we have in Jesus. And then he goes, and I can't even explain it to you because you're babies. And you, you haven't grown up like you should have by now. I can't even explain to you these big, awesome truths. I can't give you this, the ribeye steak of truth because you're still eating pablum. or That's what they used to call it when I was a mom. That little cream of wheat, like baby food. You mix up the first time you feed a baby. That's what I picture. You, you have to have milk. You have to have baby food because you can't digest it because you've been immature. And you have been sluggish and you have not been learning and experiencing God's truth. So you can't handle the truth, I want to tell you. It's like that Jack Nicholson movie, Free Brave Men, where he's at the end, that big scene where he's like, you can't handle the truth. You almost sense this, like, you know, even though Jack Nicholson was off his rocker in that movie. But this is what it feels like is you can't handle the truth because you cannot accept it. You don't have the prerequisites down pat. Um, This would be like uh, math. If I didn't learn my math, I couldn't do calculus. If I had not learned my ABCs, I couldn't have read, um, you know, poems in grad school. I couldn't have handled T.S. Eliot if I had never learned syntax or grammar or the alphabet. And he's saying, I want to share these things and you have to go back to the basics with you. Like, and he's frustrated and he's sad. And so he gives this list of kind of like this, these baffling building blocks. So let's keep reading in verse 11. About this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For, who, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And they have been sluggish and been lazy and they have not been doing this. They have not been using powers of discernment trained by constant practices to distinguish good from evil. So what does he list? What are these basic building blocks? Um, He does not want to go back to laying a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. That's the first pair. He also talks about doctrines of baptism and laying on of hands and also resurrection from the dead and judgment. Okay, so these are basic principles that they need to have bought into and experienced and not just know in their head, but been living based on repentance from your dead works. No more this Jewish ritual good works. You, that will not save you. You need repenting, turning away from that stuff. And you need to know that your faith has to be in Jesus, not in yourself. That's a basic tenet of their salvation. They have got to have gotten that by now to move on. 
But also he talks about different things that sound weird to us, like doctrines of baptisms. Um, and maybe he's referring to the different baptisms that they had, John the Baptist, Jesus, different, different ways. I'm not sure about that. Or maybe even this idea of laying on hands means either you're appointed, like he's talking about priests, or it may mean you have gifts of the Holy Spirit that we see and play in the new church. That you've been given these things to work for God's kingdom. And then the last pair is resurrection and judgment. That the resurrection was a huge thing covered by, say, Peter and Paul in those early sermons of the church. I mean, resurrection was proof that this was real. And so, of course, you had to have, if you're wrestling with that, you are not really grasping the major foundations of your salvation. And that there is judgment. There's Like we talked about last week, you get rebellion does not give you rest. You follow this salvation. You follow Christ. You have the rest and not earn a judgment from God. So he's saying, look, I got, why do I have time to go back to these basic things? You should be teaching others about this. You should be really, really have matured past this to be able to grasp these other things built on those truths. And, you know, for this congregation that the writer is is writing, this is where they're really tempted because what is the huge temptation for them particularly is to go back to Judaism. Judaism was kind of a safer religion to practice where they were. They wanted to go back. And he's like, what? Like, what? That's like saying, I don't believe in math or I don't believe in the ABCs. I think there's a, I think I want to go back to that time where we drew pictures. And you're like, what? No. I'm so like beyond that wanting to tell you these great things about Jesus and you're wanting to go back. And, but this was a real temptation because they would have been safer physically. Their children and wives may not have been persecuted. So you get the idea of how they are like the people under Moses wanting to go back to Egypt. And he is saying no. And he is, it, so they really, some of the, a lot of these things he's listing have stuff to do with the Old Testament teachings and practices. So they are, they are susceptible to that, maybe even more so than we would be about those particular things. But he is saying, look, you're wanting to go look and love on those sonogram pictures again. No. I thought we covered that all that Old Testament stuff were sonogram snapshots. I am telling you, you need to mature so you can grasp the baby and hold the baby. Let's pick up in chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. And he lists the things we just talked about. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, to have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls in it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Okay, oh, this is where we get into some of the really squirrely stuff. Um, first of all, let's just get the big picture, because in 6, we're starting to see him talk about 
some of these sins. Uh, they're different. Basically, I'm getting a lot of this from this podcast of a class from Covenant Seminary, and I wish I could tell you the guy's name, but I can't find it on my podcast list because I don't know how to do podcasts. But this is not like, this is from me reading a lot of commentaries and listening to this class. So I don't want you to think that I'm just this smart or that I just came up with this. So this, I'm just trying to deliver it in a very concise way so you can kind of get start thinking about it. So if you have any questions, let me know. So basically we see there are these basically three buckets of sins. There are the sins of ignorance that you just don't know. And there are the sins of indifference where you just don't care. <laughs> Maybe you're sluggish or lazy. And then there are the sins of deliberate turning away. Okay, so in 6.2, we see just, you may not know, um, by 6.12, we're seeing that they've been lazy. And by 6.4, like through 9 or so, you see this unforgivable sin is kind of what we talk about it. So how do you get to this? Because I sure don't want to be doing it. And you see this idea of if you don't use it, you could lose it. Um, This idea of backsliding. um, From Hebrews 2, we see the language of drifting away or ignoring. Um, By the time we get to Hebrews 5, we hear that they've been dull of hearing. And then the writer starts talking about this idea of just apostasy, where you have a deliberate turning away from this faith. And what the writer is telling him is, look, it, ignorance, you know, look, that's like, that's like if, um, okay, say I go to a new school and no one told me that they had a school uniform. Well, the first day I go to school, somebody's going to say, hey, you didn't know this, but you're supposed to be wearing the school uniform. You're like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know. Well, over the semester, if I show up with like a red t-shirt and the rest of my uniform because I didn't wash it or maybe it's real wrinkly or maybe like I just, I just don't care or I've, just, I've not been on top of making sure my uniform is washed for school. It, it's, you're, you're doing it, but you, your heart's not in it. You don't really care. Maybe you really don't like the uniform, you know. But deliberate is when you take the uniform and you set it on fire and you say, I'm never wearing this again and I'm out of here. Okay, that's the kind of progression we're talking about. So this leads, this, this writer is like in, in so warning them about their ignorance of things and of them being lazy and not practicing what they know. He is saying, look, do you know where unbelief leads to? Do you know where, what is at stake here? And he starts giving this ultimate warning of this unforgivable, unforgivable sin where someone has been tasting of the Holy Spirit has has been has looked like a believer and then all of a sudden is like and I'm out of here I'm never coming back like this is like a very deliberate conscious decision to not follow Jesus and he's saying when somebody does that it's impossible they've they can't re-crucify Jesus they that is such shame on Jesus and he basically saying that that will not happen, which is really scary sounding, frankly, very scary. So Kent Hughes says, what, you know, when I, when you might go, okay, what is this again? This is his definition of the unforgivable sin. It's a conscious, deliberate, permanent resisting to the Holy Spirit who finally forsakes the person, abandoning him or her to his own wickedness and stubbornness. It's basically God giving you what you want. 
when you say, I do not want God. I, but this isn't just like somebody who's never known God or been around things of God. This person is likely to be in the church or grew up in a Christian home or has like knows enough to know what she is saying no to. And it's very deliberate and it's forever. Like, and God says, okay, you got what you wanted. Um, so obviously we're all sitting in our chairs right now or on our walks going, oh my goodness, have I done this? Am I, is this it? Am I lost? Honestly, if you're asking that question, the answer is no. (laughs) So that's good. Um, but this does kind of sound an alarm for us to be, wait a minute, I need to wake up. It's like, um, I was asleep, um, over the break and all of a sudden my smoke alarm started going off and my house wasn't on fire, but there was a wet log in my fireplace to where there was so much smoke. I was awakened by this alarm and I went, oh my goodness, those fire alarms really work. If that had been a real fire, I would have been toast. And this is almost that kind of thing of wake up, sister, wake up. This is some serious stuff we're talking about. So what it is not is losing your salvation because we know from other passages in the Bible. Remember, you don't want to build a whole truth based on one unclear verse. You want to look at the rest of Scripture. And we have a million clear passages talking about how once you are saved, you cannot be lost. But the way that um, that I think we can look at this is we can look at salvation from a pastor's perspective, the way the writer is viewing it, The same thing can be viewed from God's perspective, how we see other verses telling us about how our salvation is secure. So let's think about that for a second. Think if you're a pastor or a friend and you can just see the outside. You just see fruit. You just see what's growing in a field. A lot of people look like they're believers. They're doing good things. They go to church. They're teaching People. They know a lot about the Bible. They're always there. They're serving. They're giving away money. They're, they're all the things. And God is saying, you can look like it and actually not be in love with Jesus. And so for a pastor who sees that and then all of a sudden sees someone leave the faith, it makes you go, were they ever really a believer? You know, we see people like Judas. I mean, my goodness, he was in charge of the money. He was one of the 12 disciples. None of them suspected him the night before, he, the night he betrayed Jesus. Jesus knew it. And, and, and he obviously would have been never thought of as not being a believer. I mean, he was walking the walk and talking the talk, and he was in charge of the money. Okay, but we know later he was never in love with Jesus. Think about Demas who looked like a believer, but he really, I mean, there's something about money here. There are people always in love with money. Um, Think about when Jesus is talking about the people that come to him and say, but Lord, Lord, didn't we, don't you know us? And he goes, I never knew you. Even though you did all those good things, I never knew you. Think about the parable, the sower, the field, that at least a couple of those fields looked like they were legit. And even the one, they would spring up and look like there was life there. But you knew later, over time, there wasn't life there. That the good soil is the one that produced the fruit over time. And then, 
looking at it from God's perspective, though, like the, as humanly speaking, we can only see, we can't see the heart. Okay, but God's perspective sees the heart, and he knows the ones that know his name and know his voice. And so we do see people that, you know, that don't look like maybe they're one of God's, but they are. Think about Lot. Think about how God went and rescued Lot because there was one, at least one person, his family, that followed him. And you, we would have written Lot off years ago. Don't tell me you wouldn't have. Um, think about David, okay? Think about a leader of God's people who committed adultery. So, like, maybe these days we go, oh, everybody does that, but then murdered someone to keep that a secret. I mean, he was a man after God's own heart. So, you see how there's so many uh, ways that we can uh, assume someone is not a believer and vice versa. The thief on the cross, who would have thought he was a believer and would be in heaven, okay? So think about that when you think about how God's perspective is. Once I start a work in you, I am not gonna not finish it. He talks about how would I bring a baby to birth and not finish birthing it? Would I put a lady in labor, your salvation, this relationship, and not finish it? Like, that makes no sense to God. He says, I, like, I will never let go of the ones you give me, Jesus. I will never let one of them fall out of my hands. I keep them. So think of all the verses from God's perspective. Once it's real, it will happen. It will finish. Now, you may be bedraggled and the race is hard, but it will succeed. Okay, so if we look, this is just to encourage you, look back to chapter 6, verse 1, when it says, let us go on to perfection. Really, the Greek should, the Greek more says, let us be carried. Okay, so let us be carried to perfection. Let us understand this because someone is helping us. So all this pressure to, oh my goodness, I've got to be mature. I've got to have steak. I've got to be ready or I'm going to have this unforgivable sin. God is saying, no, you're being carried in this. God is going to do it. Now do it. And I don't know why that is really hard for us to hold both those things because we're so, and rightly so, teach Grace alone saves, but grace looks active. It looks active because of God's action. You see fruit. That is a normal, ordinary thing that happens when God works. He, that fruit is present, okay? So how do you know if I'm in danger of this? Well, like I said, if you're worried about it, it's not too late. Ask someone, say, look, I need some encouragement. I need to know. I need a well check. Do you see any fruit of me? Do you see any ways? And just to sum up, the writer lands back on grace. Um, and by verse 3, I mean verse 9 of chapter 6, he switches from this uh, kind of hypothetical, this is what can happen, this is where unbelief leads to real life personal between him and them. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He doesn't think they're in danger of this because he's seen their fruit. He knows that he knows them. And he is not saying this is true of them, but he's using it as a wake-up call. 
because it is so scary. And so we need to see any sort of correction from God's word um, in the hands of like words that our friends and pastors and teachers share with us that as correction is protection. That, that if you're ignorant and you have sins of just not knowing better, that you learn. You go to God's Word, you learn. You listen, you go to Bible study. I'm kind of preaching to the choir here. Um, You go learn so you don't make that mistake. You find out, is there a school uniform? Because if so, I want to put it on. You know, that kind of thing. Um, And then if you're lazy and just slipping, and you don't really care about obeying that well, something's wrong because that is not the Holy Spirit working in you. You may need a stronger correction. You may not need to bristle up when your friend comes to you and says, Hey, man, I think you've been gossiping a lot. Or the way you talked about our friend made me feel uncomfortable. Or have you considered that the way you're loving your husband is is really not loving him? And the way you talk about your husband is really disrespectful. And something's going on. Can I help? Let us go together and figure out what's causing this. And then for those really tough cases where it is plain old, I'm about to leave, that, that you may have a pastor or a friend saying, were you ever a believer? Do you need to consider Jesus? Do you, do you really want to do this? Um, you know, it's just, it's, these are very awkward conversations a lot of times, but they are for your protection, Okay. And lastly, let's consider the consolation that the writer offers us in verses 13 through 19 because he says, believe God's word that this is going to come true. He made an oath to Abraham. He will finish it. And we know how long it took Abraham to even see an inkling of those promises, like 25 years to even have Isaac born. So, of course, we're going to be waiting on how God answers our prayers, but also knowing that there is an assurance There is a hope because we have an anchor, an anchor of the heart that is moored in the presence of God in heaven in verses 19 and 20. And contrast that with the whole metaphor of drifting, a boat drifting nowhere. You are not drifting because the anchor of your soul is right there at the feet of Jesus where he is interceding for you and praying for you. So this keeps us tied when the current of our lives is very rough or very complacent, or just all sorts of things, our doubts and questions, or dark waters of sadness, that you are connected to something so sure and so steady. So where is your anchor? Where is your confidence? And if it's in anything other than in Jesus as our great high priest, compassionate, empathizing, and God, you please, please go to him and make it so. Thank you.